Today's guest is Nick Hodges. He's a developer advocate at 1Password. He's an author of three books about the Delphi programming language, which I have a connection with uh, way long ago. And he continues to write on a variety of topics on his Substack and his website. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Nick. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Thank you very much, Jeremy. So for those who haven't met you, uh, talk a bit about your background. Where are you from? Uh, who, who are you as a person and what do you do? Sure. Uh, I'm from Minnesota. My name is Nick Hodges and I'm originally from Minnesota. I, uh, I moved there when I was 12, but I, I want to stake a fake claim to being like a native Minnesotan. It's like it, somehow <laughs> it, it got imbued in me. And uh, even though I haven't lived there, I've lived there a little bit over the uh, since I left college, but uh, I currently live in uh, uh, Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philly. And um, I uh, am the developer advocate at, uh, actually, Passage was my original company, but we got uh, acquired by 1Password. So technically, I'm a 1Password employee, and we're not quite sure what's going to happen to the Passage brand. But anyway, we do uh, authentic pa uh, passwordless and passkey-based authentication for web and mobile and whatnot. And uh, I really like it. It's a really good time. Uh, over the years, uh, I've uh, uh, been a high school teacher and intel officer in the Navy. I've been a, uh, what else? Uh, I own my own uh, Delphi consulting company for a number of years. And I actually work for Borland slash Codegear slash Embarcadero as the product manager for Delphi. And then uh, I came out here to Pennsylvania and worked for a company called Gateway Ticketing Systems. And uh, all along the way, I was doing uh, conferences. I did the Borland Conference. I was on the advisory board for the Borland Conference, did a lot of meetups and presentations and just loved doing that. And a couple of years ago, I figured I could get paid for it. So I became a developer advocate. Nice. So let's roll that back a little bit. So college, yes, no? Yes, uh, I went to Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, most people have heard of St. Olaf in Northfield, Minnesota, but not many has not of it, many of us have not as many have heard of our uh, the crosstown rival Carleton. Uh, we were a very snooty liberal arts college, and uh, I studied classical languages there. Oh. And uh, I, I got into classical languages mainly because I wanted to be able to read uh, the New Testament in Greek uh, back then. And so I, and there was a language requirement. So I said, I'll take Greek sure. and I enjoyed it so much. I ended up majoring in it, but uh, I, I, I graduated with that degree in classical languages. And I also graduated with a profound ignorance about what I was going to do with that and my life. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those crazy things uh, you know, this was back in the mid eighties. And um, of course, if I had had half a brain, I would have leveraged the uh, programming experience I got in junior high and high school and like gotten a job at a tech company or something and, or like, I don't know, Microsoft or something like that. <laughs> I'd probably be like, a, I'd probably be a retired millionaire now, but you know, the times were different. So I, uh, you know, and again, my profound ignorance led me to uh, uh, be a Latin teacher in Texas, actually. It's a long, kind of a long story how I ended up there, but uh, Texas actually is a state with Latin in its curriculum. Huh. And uh, so I got a uh, uh, job teaching at Pasadena High School in Pasadena, Texas, outside of Houston. And I did that for a couple of years. Uh, and that didn't work out real well because I was like 23 going on 17 and all the kids were 16 going on 35, you know. <laughs> so that didn't quite work out. And uh, uh, from there, I uh, uh, joined the Navy. I was 
literally watching a TV commercial and called the 1-800 number and signed up and uh, went to Aviation Officer Candidate School. Um, that was a, after the first summer. And that was actually back in uh, the 80s, again, mid-80s, where the you know the Navy was all about 600 ship Navy. And so they were cranking 100 guys through, um, well, and women too. There were some women there back, even back then. Uh, through Aviation Officer Canada School every week. And I had to wait a whole nother year. So I, I had to uh, teach another year of school, which I didn't enjoy. But, you know, and, you know, God bless uh, public, you know, public school teachers or teachers of any kind, I guess, but just wasn't a good fit for me. Uh, but, I, you know, I made it and uh, got went to a AOCS, Aviation Officer Canada School, and then uh, did a 12 years as a Naval Intelligence Officer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. It was all right. Uh, the first, my, my career was divided into three chunks. The first chunk was, uh, I was in F-18 squadrons. I was the aviation intel officer for F-18 squadrons, which was really awesome. So squadron life is great. I got to fly in the plane a bunch. I got to fly the simulator all the time. Um, and uh, really had a lot of fun. Uh, and then I went to the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, where I got an information technology management degree. And, uh, uh, it was it was then that I got the bug, you know, caught the bug again from uh, programming that I had in junior high and high school. And actually, in junior high and, you know, in the mid 70s, uh, they taught us basic and uh, I wrote programs in basic and wrote very early crude text based uh, computer games. You know, you are walking down the street and somebody <laughs> comes up to you and says this and what do you do? You know, just those classic games. And. I really liked it, but somewhere along the line of high school, I figured out that girls didn't like that too much. They didn't think that was cool. This was before nerds ruled the world, you know. Right. Um, and you know, now if you're a now if you're a coder, that's like, ooh, you know. But uh, back then, it was not. Anyway, I I started uh, uh, picking up Turbo Pascal and uh, from Borland, and really enjoyed that. Just doing it as a purely as a hobby. Um, my first actually actually I say Turbo Pascal. It was the first copy I bought was Turbo Pascal for Windows. Because mm -hmm. um, I was a big Windows 3.1 guy, I really enjoyed that. Um, thought it was cool, and it, and it was really kind of amazing when I made a win. You know, the program I had written, I remember that being. I don't know why I thought that was just so so <laughs> very very cool. You know, right? And um, uh, you know, sort of kept with that over the years as a hobby while I was in the Navy. And when I was at the postgraduate school, I uh, got a degree in information technology management did my thesis on uh, software uh, engineering, software development processes, um, and uh, really liked it. And But I got kind of caught. I, I knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do going forward at that point. But when you go to the Navy postgraduate school, you have to pay back the time because right. you're at the school. It's a, great, it's a great deal. If you're in the military, by the way, or if you're in the Navy and you can go to the Navy postgraduate school, strongly recommended. You're there in Monterey, California, right on the beach. <laughs> Right. You get paid your full lieutenant's pay or whatever rank you are, you know, and uh, you're a full time student. That's it. Your only military obligation other than being a full time student is once a month you have to wear a uniform and that's it. Right. Uh, and so that was really fun. And um, uh, but I ended up having to do four more years of time before I got out at that point. And so, you know, it was it was a. Uh, uh, that was a, some challenging times, but I learned a lot and, uh, uh, you know, kept just fanatically learning programming to the best of my ability, you know, so. Um, so now I have, I know a bit about the, the Navy. I, I was Air Force myself, so. Uh, oh, well, I'm sorry. I've already going on here, right? Um, 
<laughs> uh, any any interesting uh, duty stations? Um, yeah, my first tour of duty was I was stationed in Japan um, uh, on the USS Midway. The Navy has a forward deployed carrier. I think they're still a carrier. I'm pretty sure they're still a carrier. I mean, it's been years now, but the USS Midway was stationed in Japan. Uh, carrier Air Wing 5 was there, and I was stationed at NAS Atsugi or NAF, I guess that's a naval air facility, if there's some difference. And uh, that was really fun. Uh, you know, I cruised quite a bit, but I spent a lot of time in Japan and Korea. In I was in Okinawa for a while, and I spent a lot of time in the Philippines. Hmm. You know, the Japanese, uh, we have the carrier there, but the Japanese won't let us do any kind of training really that we need to do while we're in Japan. We can still fly, but like we can't do the night carrier. We can't do carrier landings because the approaches are so low. Right. Or practice, you know, on not not on the carrier but you know you can't practically field carrier landing practice fclp they call it and i can't do that you can't do any kind of strike missions low level flying anything so that's why we spend a lot of time in the philippines because we would go down to uh qb point naval air station down there at uh in subic bay uh naval base i didn't get stuck in minot south dakota like you probably did so <laughs> no i did not i i, I, I did <laughs> california and, and washington dc and in, a little bit of time in england so i can't what did you what did you do in the, in the air force I, uh, I started as a police officer and ended as an IT guy. I, I, convert, oh, okay. I converted my career field to IT when I got oh. married and my wife was like, no, no, on the law enforcement thing. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. I can't complain. It's worked out very well for me. Yeah. And then I uh, uh, I got stuck in, uh, yeah, I was teasing you about mine. Actually, mine, it's in North Dakota. But I was teasing you. I got stuck in, I shouldn't say stuck, but I got stationed in uh, Naval Air Station Lemoore, which is in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, south of Fresno. And I mean, when I say in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley, I mean, it is right. Yeah, it is cotton fields as far as the eye can see with mountains on either edge, you know, and and that was great. You know, the like I said, the squadron life was really good. But, it, you know, location wise for Navy, it wasn't Jacksonville or San Diego or anything like that. But, yeah. you know, North Island or something. But those are the premium. Was, San Diego is a premium for sure. Norfolk's oh, yeah. not so bad. They got a lot of a lot of people in Norfolk. Yeah, I went to Intel School in uh, Virginia Beach, which was great, which was yeah. really cool. So yeah. yeah, it's all right. It was cool. So then, so then you you said you got the education, so you were waiting out your time in the military. How did that transition go? Uh, it was, it was good. Um, I I lined up a job with a as a Delphi programmer with a you know good friend of mine who had his own consultancy, and I did that for a year, and uh, then I struck out on my own. Um, and that was, it, it was, it was good. I, I don't know about you. When I got out of the military, I like totally rebelled. You know, I grew my hair long. I grew a big beard. I pierced my ear. You know, I did all that. I, I don't know. I, I, I look back on it. It's, it was, you know, I won't, I don't want to say it's childish, but it was, it was, I feel a little silly that I did all that, but you know, like, you know, everybody, every day you're shaving every day. Right. And you have to keep your hair perfect. And you know, I don't know. I just felt like, so that so the transition socially was in that regard was kind of interesting but uh I, I i stepped right into the development world which was really cool and it was something i really wanted to do and i had been doing it as a hobby and i loved the thought of getting paid for it so you know making that career break it was it was a challenging i mean you know what i'm you know i did 12 years in the navy right and that's right on the edge of you know you got to stay for 20, right? You know, nobody does 16 years in the military. <laughs> right. 12 is about the largest number. I mean, I probably, you know, nobody does 18 years. Nobody does. I mean, 12, 
if you're at 15, you're going to go right to 20. But I didn't. So, you know, fateful decision in some ways. Actually, I got out right before 9-11. So that was an interesting, uh-huh. that would have been an interesting, if I had stayed in. And I was actually fairly lucky that I didn't get called up. Some of my buddies got called back up as reservists. So in, mm-hmm. after 9-11. So it was a different, it was a different time, you know, for, for military folks. So. And when you say you stepped out on your own, did you, did you do your own individual consultancy or? I, I started my own consultancy uh, for, I did that for about a year. Um, and uh, then I, I was actually back in Minneapolis. I was back living in St. Paul in the in Minnesota, mm-hmm. you know, near my family, which was great. My mom and dad, brother and sister and all that. And, um, uh, and then there were two other Delphi. There were three of us, three of us all running our own individual consultancies. So we teamed up and formed our own company. And uh, we did that for, I guess we did that for four and a half, five years, you know, made payroll uh, every time, you know, it it was a little challenging, but we made payroll. We had our own office and, you know, it was cool. It was good. It was a good experience. Um, uh, Our our president, unfortunately, passed. The reason it ended was the president of the company passed away. He uh, had a heart attack and died, which was very tragic. And so we were the my other partner uh, and I were kind of adrift because we didn't know any of the business. We were like the, he was like the business guy and we were doing all the coding. So we were like, "Eh, what do we do? And uh, that was right about the time when Delphi was spinning off, Borland was spinning off Delphi Mm -hmm. into it, you know, the, or I shouldn't say Delphi, they were spinning off the uh, development tools off away from some of the other stuff that Borland was doing and formed a company, you know, formed a company inside of Borland called Code Gear. And so uh, that's when they were looking for me to, uh, and they offered me the job of the product manager, and I moved out to California to do that. And so th- that transition was kind of natural. I mean, they, you know, um, it, that was actually challenging because when Mark, my partner, uh, passed away, uh, we merged with uh, a company in Chicago, a consultancy in Chicago, bigger than us that had been doing a lot of Delphi work, and so we m- merged with them and. That was an education. Looking back on it, uh, that well, I won't name that. Well, it I felt very taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a vulnerable position, and uh, looking back on it, uh, we didn't get a very good deal when we merged, and that was a, a big life lesson for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I I was actually determined to understand the business side of things a lot more and the business value, and I I did that. You know, at Borland, I, that was one of the reasons I took a product manager job as well is that you 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 know you you come to understand the business value of your product and the business value of the company and uh so that was that was pretty good i enjoyed that um uh, and i did that for four years and i got fired (laughs) um for cause uh and i deserved it i uh uh, it was a that was another very soul-searching moment for me when i did that I, uh, you know, I won't go into the gory details, but I, I was just, I was respectfully insubordinate. And by, and that's the phrase I used to sort of maybe, maybe that's justifying myself. I don't know, but I, uh, I basically, we were basically given a death march, the software development team, you know, the Delphi development team was given a death, death march. And, um, uh, we, I did not take that well, Hmm. um, and it's, it's interesting, maybe you understand this from the military that, 
you know, one of the t- basic tenets of military leadership is you always take care of your troops, right? Yeah. You always yeah. do. And in the military, if you go to, you know, your commanding officer or something, and you go to the mat for your troops, generally speaking, the mil- the commanding officer is not going to say to you, you know, unless he has to, right? He may say no, but he'll respect you for coming to him and fighting tooth and nail for your troops, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure that's true in the corporate world. So when I saw what was happening to the team that I was managing, I was the R&D director at the time, actually, at that point. And when I saw what was happening to the team and the mission that they were being given, which was basically impossible, couldn't be done, uh, I pushed back in a way that I would have in the military that didn't go over real well in the corporate world. So I got let go and I deserved it. I, you know, I, I should have known better, really. I pushed too hard. I was a little too sassy and I was a little too... Uh, reaching out, you know, pushing for my team. And so anyway, that was, that was a very interesting transition for me. Um, Cause I was in California, uh, you know, in Scotts Valley, the Santa, you know, Santa Cruz mountains there um, was an easy drive over the hill to Santa Cruz, Santa or San Jose, you know, Silicon Valley, basically. Um, So, you know, I could have, could have looked for those kinds of things, but um, I didn't, I, you know, it's interesting. I look back and I think, I, I guess I didn't have the faith in myself to think I could get a job at Google, mm. you know? Um, and so I ended up taking a job here in PA, which worked out really well and it was all good and everything like that. But I, I and, and I, you know, I don't want to have regrets. I, I could have a lot of regrets, but, you know, again, I, it, I came out here and it all worked out fine. But I look back on that and I think, you know, I wish I'd have had a little more uh, oomph inside me to go and get one of those jobs at Google or at, uh, you know, Apple or someplace like that, where, you know, just to get that on your resume, I guess, too, or even a startup, you know, maybe I, because right. I, I kind of got startup fever about three, four years ago. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, anyway. But it, it that, makes it makes a little bit of sense, though, right? You had just had this traumatic thing, right, where you went to Matt for your people. They said, mm-hmm. well, you're not the right person for us. I, I could... I could I could feel that emotion myself if I was in that situation, yeah. and then, yeah. and then to go to a Google right after that would be hard. Yeah, it it was challenging. And the other thing that's interesting too is uh, it was, was again in 2006, and LinkedIn wasn't like the hiring machine or you know job finding machine that it was now. And so tracking down some of these jobs was a little harder. Um, I guess I could you know I could have leveraged some of the connections I had, but I didn't have a lot of deep connect you know connections into that kind of world so it it was an interesting experience for me um and uh, you know coming out here to to pennsylvania uh was a was a interesting thing i you know had a lot of ups and downs and right turns and left turns and things like that since i got here but uh uh you know uh i i think i said i I think i said earlier that you know uh all the time i was doing the presentations and writing blogs. I wrote books on Delphi, you know, I wrote and which were, you know, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond of the Delphi world. You know, I don't know, you know, a lot of the most Delphi developers knew my name from being a product manager, from being a blogger, a writer, all that stuff. And, uh, and so I was able to, you know, the, the developer advocate job has, you know, developer evangelist has been around for a long time, but not many of the smaller like startup companies were interested in it. Like Apple had one and Borland had one, you know, David and Tersimony for many years was a developer evangelist at Borland and Code Gear. 
but this job position sort of just exploded. And uh, I started out, you know, I had people contacting me. I was a software development, I was a software development manager when I came out here. And uh, I had people contacting me, offering me, you know, interviews or not offering me jobs, but, you know, saying, hey, would you be interested in this developer advocate job? And finally, I went, yeah, I think I would. <laughs> and so I took one and, uh, uh, you know, here I am, kind of different. Yeah. And for people who maybe don't know what a developer advocate is, can you explain a little bit about that role? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting role. Uh, you know, developer tools are just exploding, right? So GitHub has currently has 100, just past 100 million users, crazy. Um, which is, that's crazy. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of, that's a huge market and, uh, you know, developer tools and all the things that are going on have just exploded. You know, development is so different now. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking, I don't know who I was talking to a friend about this the other day that, that, uh, you know, back in the Delphi days, when I was the Delphi product manager, we released once a year (laughs) and then maybe six weeks later, we released a patch to fix some bugs. But if you wanted a new feature, and you had a new feature, you had to wait till, you know, that long release date out there before you could ship it. Whereas now, you know, you, uh, uh, at, at Passage, we literally had a situation where somebody thought, you know, this would be a cool little feature to add. They thought of it in the morning, coded it during the day and shipped it and released it in the afternoon. Wow. You know, that, that's, that's completely foreign. And that's because, you know, the SAS model, the code resides, you know, on your server and is just broadcast through the browser, right? right? Whereas with Delphi, you know, the this big C, you know, C DVD of software goes out to you and you install it and put it on your hard drive. Very different model. And so all kinds of developer tools have exploded out around this, you know, both productivity and implementation. So, you know, uh, uh, the developer advocate position getting back to your question, is really designed around the notion that developers uh, don't, uh, developers are notorious for not responding to tr- traditional marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the traditional way of marketing to people, advertising, you know, uh, lots of exclamation points and, and flashy <laughs> stuff. You know, developers want to know, you know, how, wh- how does this thing work and what does it do for me? Yeah. So the developer advocate, you know, my job is really to teach, is to educate developers and talk to develop, you know, talk developer to developer about what passage does and how pass keys work and how passwordless works and, you know, biometrics and how all that works, because that's what they want to know, right? If they look at our product and they think, first thing they want to know is how does it, what does it do? Then the second thing is how does it work? And then the third thing I want to know is how do I implement it? Right. Yeah. And they don't want a lot of flashy copy. They don't want this, you know, they don't want to talk to, they don't want to talk to a sales guy, right? They do not, right? <laughs> but they'd be happy to, but they're learning that they can talk to developer advocates. And like part of my job is to not try and sell them. Like do not give them a sales pitch, like specifically, uh, purposefully do not give them a sales pitch, you know? Mm. And, uh, and so Developer advocate is kind of part product and part marketing, uh, but you're like the anti. I, I try and be the anti marketer. You know, I, I, 
in, you know, in the, in my, one of my past developer advocate jobs, um, I considered it part of my duty to demarketify communication with developers, you know, like say things like, no, that phrase there is not something that they're going to, that's <laughs> right. Gonna, you know, that will, that will, what's, I don't know what the opposite of resonant resonate is, but it will not resonate with developers if you use that phrase and things like that. So I, you know, I, on a daily basis, I'm, you know, writing blogs, I'm building demos, um, um, sitting in occasionally on sales calls, you know, with, if there's going to be a developer in the call, then I usually will sit in on it kind of thing. Just so that if, if there has to be a developer, developer con, you know, talk, technical support, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I go to conferences, I give, I give presentations at conferences, things like that, stand in the booth and talk to developers, you know. Sure. And, Those are valuable. Like I, I love going to conferences just to talk to the people like yourself and let's yeah. say, hey, let's whiteboard this, right? And then we just yeah. actually yeah, exactly. work it out. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you know, how's it implemented? And, the, you know, the, the marketing person standing in the booth goes, uh. Right. I know, can tell I, you the product skew and the price. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I can answer the, how does it work? You know, right. that question, you know, how does it all work? So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm enjoying it, having a good time. And yeah, so it's good. Wow. Well, so you've been on a very interesting journey as you've gone through this journey. I, I'm sure you've run into a situation where there's something that you wish we just did it differently, right? It's a, if we came to you and we said, you know, uh, Nick, you have the power today to, to make us, uh, change something or or maybe maybe it's too big today you have the power to make us really just consider that we should modify the way we're doing something what, what might that be for you that you've seen throughout I mean, like, your career? like in the tech business in general or yeah in tech business or the way or in people side of business something that is just you looked at it and gone i wish we didn't do it that way yeah um that's an interesting question um i guess if i were to look back on it i would probably wish that there would be a way for non-technical managers of software companies to understand how developers work. Mm. Um, one of the big frustrations, and in fact, that was one of the root causes of me getting fired, was that upper management weren't developers and didn't understand and, and I've seen this all over, you know, you, you, I've seen it in many companies where the, the and, and it's a cliche too, right? The buzzword of the week or, you know, the president, the CEO saw a buzzword in, in software development times and says, we need this or something like that. You know, you know nine tenths of the Dilbert conversations, right. Dilbert comic strips, right? Or other result of that kind of thing. And uh, I guess I just wish there would be a way for I, I guess the way I would put it would be, I wish there was a way that somehow along the way we could have embraced the uncertainty of software development a lot more. One of the, one of my big frustrations was always, well, you have to get 10 pounds of stuff in this five pound bag. And, you know, that translates into, you have to get these six features ready by this ship date. Right. Well, you know, I understand the business need. I understand that, but there's also, you know, is it, is it better to get the six features crappy or four features, right? You know, and, and that dichotomy, you know, that challenge of, of, of making folks understand that you can't have, you can't put 10 pounds of stuff in a five pound bag. You just can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you end up with, you know, 
you end up either not shipping, which is frequent, or you know, cutting features at the end, which makes everybody upset. And, you know, marketing's got all the materials and then they have to change it or whatever, you know, or you end up shipping all of it, but it's not ready, you know, and, and none of those is a good choice. So, and, and, you know, maybe there's no way to fix that. I mean, maybe that's just the way it is and you have to pick your poison. I don't know. Um, but uh, I think, that, you know, and, and that was part of the problem of only shipping once a year, you know, today, I think it's, it's a less of a problem. And I think we have kind of solved it to a certain degree because, you know, um, you can just deliver incrementally anytime you want, you know, you can very short bursts of delivery. And so I think that does answer that question, that problem to a certain degree. To a certain but, degree. Yeah. It's still, yeah. it still will always be right. I want this and you can, you say, but I can only give you this, right. That right. it'll always yeah. be there. In fact, I remember one of my favorite books to talk to my managers about when I was doing software engineering, it's like the black art of software estimation. Oh yeah. It was oh. press. It was really thick and you yep. read the whole book and you get to the last chapter and it basically says, guess, you know, yep. <laughs> the art of estimating oh, when yeah. it's going to be done is just a guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Another great book I, uh, I used to read as a manager was Peopleware by DeMarco and Lister. Great book, yeah. Fantastic book. Yeah, I love that book. Because they're real honest about that. They're like really brutally honest about, you, you know, you just, you can't, you can't have, you know, management can't have what they want, what they typically want, you know. Right. And so you have to manage that and figure out a, a way to manage up and down. And that's what got me in trouble, right? Was I was managing down, but I wasn't managing up at all. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Well, it's it's a it's an interesting uh, like a negotiation skill, right? To go mm -hmm. back to management and say, you know, here's the here's the the the, the timeline or the scale or whatever you want to do, it. and then we can move this lever, like to try to balance it. And here's the balancing right. characteristics right. Like you said, right? Is it a lot of stuff done poorly? Some stuff done okay, and some stuff not, or everything done quality. And you're, I think, at you're right, agile is so, sort of given us um, more opportunities. But then again, some things they just ask for are just too big in a sprint. There's just no way you're going to get, and you can't, you can't release it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm actually uh, writing an article uh, about that very topic about how agile has only recently, because of the SaaS stuff that we were talking about earlier, really become practical. Like, yeah. and that you can't take agile and apply it to what we call legacy systems today. Right. It doesn't work. That won't work, but it does work today. So like the journey to agile, maybe we finally arrived and it was a bumpy road because you couldn't apply the true agile techniques to a legacy to you. Like you can't apply true agile to the Delphi product, but you can apply it to the SAS product of at uh, passage. Right. You know, of, right. of what we, so I don't know. It, it, Interesting, but that's an interesting thought, right? We that that and it's going to probably always be right. It's it is the manager versus worker uh issue that's never gone away, right? Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, I want X absolutely. and you say, but I can't uh, give me more people or, or give me more money or give me more time, right? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, what's what's coming up for you in the in the in the next year here for you, Nick? Um, well, uh, we're in the process of kind of figuring out what we're going to do for conferences. I love going to conferences, so uh, I'm spending a lot of time, um, uh, figuring out which conferences I want to go to. We're focusing our attention on the uh, big three or four uh, frameworks, you know, Angular, Vue, React, Next, uh, 
Svelte, some of those kinds of things. And so I'm looking at going to the major conferences for that. And uh, of course, continuing to uh, educate and help developers learn about how pass keys work, how uh, you know passwordless authentication can work, um, bringing, bringing information back from talking to developers to the development team to see how we can make it easier to implement and all that stuff. So yeah, it's going to be a good year. We just got acquired by uh, 1Password. So uh, it's kind of nice to, you know, we were a startup and so we were, you know, we were well-funded startup, but it was, it's nice to have a good solid company with an excellent reputation for security yeah. uh, to uh, back us talking about passwordless authentication. And so, you know, there's a lot of trust that comes with that. That's really good. So I'm looking forward to 2023. It's been going to be great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Nick. This has been My a great pleasure. conversation. I loved hearing about your history and a shared uh, uh, experience in the military. I appreciate that. Yeah, I say that. I say, you know, everybody likes talking about themselves and it was a, I really appreciate the opportunity to do so here. Thank you. Awesome.